0: So I'm down here this morning, you'll notice I'm not in a robe, Um, and this is part of the teach-in that I talked about earlier today. One of the parts of a a teach-in that's really important is that you break the the cycle of what's done every week and do something different. So rather than be up on a pulpit giving a sermon, I'm going to be down here and we're going to talk a little bit, so that'll be a combination of longer readings, reflections, Time for you to, if you want, have conversations with each other. I want to start with that, that hymn that we just sang. The lyrics from it are from a poem called The Present Crisis that was written by John, James Russell Lowell in 1845. He was the son of a Unitarian minister. He probably went to a Unitarian church once or twice, but that was the, the not-so-cool thing that his dad did. But Lowell was a, a contemporary of Emerson, of Thoreau, of Margaret Fuller, who I think we might have talked about last week. I wasn't here. Okay, so we, we've just talked about Margaret Fuller. Margaret Fuller said about Lowell, his verse is stereotyped, his thought sounds no depth, and posterity will not remember him. <laughs> <laughs> not a fan. But that, that one poem that he titled the present crisis has had traction through the 150 years since it was written. The newsletter of the NAACP, the crisis gets its name from that poem. Martin Luther King was famous for quoting it. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and beyond the great unknown stands God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. Lowell wrote, the present crisis, in the crisis of 1845, as the country was grappling with what it meant that there was slavery, legal. In this country, this country whose ideals are so high. We're in the midst of our own crisis right now. This isn't a new crisis, something that's grown over the last two or three years race, America, and the complicity and the participation of (coughs) all of us and the Unitarian Universalist Association that we are a part of in that system. So last spring, if you were here on May 7th, there was a big teach-in event. Over 600 UU congregations participated, well over half of Unitarian Universalist congregations across the country came together to talk about white supremacy in the UUA. It was touched off by a hiring controversy within the association that we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about later, but we won't spend a whole lot of time on it this week. And we've been asked to follow up on that teach-in this week. To talk about issues raised in the UUA And for myself, I want to follow up on a sermon that I gave in August about the proposed eighth principle to Unitarian Universalism. Does anybody remember that sermon? It was my first one here. (laughs) (laughs) But the proposed eighth principle, which is going to be voted on at GA in the summer, where I hope a lot of us are reads, we the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse multicultural beloved community by our actions to accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. So we're gonna do this differently this morning. Have a combination of singing, reflections, reading and conversations one of the things we're going to talk about is the need to decenter whiteness. I know that I am an imperfect messenger for this. But this is one of the reasons I'm here, rather than up here. Because I don't know all the answers to this stuff. I, I struggle with it, weekly, daily. And so I want to be honest about the stuff that I'm struggling with. I hope that we can be honest together about what we're struggling with, and go through it, step by step. I'll also uh, break with tradition in one thing. Normally, I really don't like sermon talkbacks. Um, but today, once we're done with the teach-in, I'll stay up here. And if anybody wants to stay in this room instead of going and getting coffee and ask questions, we can have a, a less structured conversation that way. All right, let's begin. And if we could begin with a hymn, Building a New Way, this is in the teal hymnal. If somebody could shout out the number, that would be lovely, 1017. We're going to sing just the first two verses now. We'll come back and sing the other verses later, but we'll start with the first two verses now, 1017. Our first reading is from John Powell. The invisibility of whiteness means that one doesn't have to notice that one is white. So there are people, and there are black people. There are people, and there are Latino people. And people, just people, just folks, turn out to be white, but we don't notice it. White people have the luxury of not having to think about race. That is the benefit of being white, of being part of the dominant group. Just like men don't have to think about gender. The system works for you. And you don't have to think about it. So they live in white space, and then they don't have to think about it. First of all, they think about race as something that belongs to someone else. The thing that's really slick about whiteness, if you will, is that most of the benefits can be obtained without ever doing anything personally. There are a whole set of assumptions that flow from being white, just like there are a whole set of benefits that flow from being male. You know, being a a man doesn't mean you have antipathy towards women, but if society is patriarchal, which a lot of people say it is, it means that the way resources are distributed in society benefits men. In that sense, men are not innocent, even though they may not personally have antipathy towards women. In that same way, in that sense, white folks are not innocent. They're given the spoils of a racist system, even if they themselves are not racist. So what led us to this point? There was a teach-in on May 7th, last year. 2017, last church year. So it was a direct result of a hiring controversy at the Unitarian Universalist Association. And just briefly, because this gets into inside baseball in the UUA very quickly, but there were several dozen districts in the UUA. They were consolidated into six regions. So this church used to be a part of the Prairie Star District of the UUA, which is Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota. I think the Dakotas, but we're so thin on the ground there. (laughs) The Dakotas were part of the Prairie Star District. We're now part of the Mid-America region, which stretches from Ohio all the way over to Nebraska up to the Canadian border and down to Kentucky, it's a big region. It's a big region. So there are six regional lead positions in the UUA. And last year there was a a hire for the southern regional lead, which is the whole southeast part of the country. And they hired a white male minister And then somebody pointed out, you know, the UUA has has claimed for 20 years that we're an anti-racist organization. You have six regional leads. All of them are white ministers. How did that happen? So clearly there's been a disconnect between our principles in the Unitarian Universalist Association and our practices, particularly as it relates to hiring leadership. So one of the things that came out of this uh, large discussion was a request that we talk about this in our congregations. That we struggle with what this means in our congregations. So, let's start with definitions. There's a joke from the, the 19th century that says that the Universalists better do well because they have laid claim to the biggest word in the English language. Universalism. White supremacy is a really big word. And if we're using it, we have to grapple with all the different things that it can mean. It can mean what happened in Charlottesville this summer. But it can also mean the day-to-day interactions with the system that we live in. The water that we swim in every day that privileges one set of identities above another set of identities. The proposed eighth principle calls us to dismantle racism in ourselves and in our institutions. This implicates all of us, not one of us gets out of dismantling oppression in ourselves and in our institutions. John Powell says that the, the slick thing about whiteness is that most of the benefits can be obtained without us doing anything personally. It's just the way things are. This is insidious in a way that I'm still wrapping my head around. So for those of us who, who struggle with this word of supremacy, what could be a greater example of supremacy than the power to define what is normal? What is the thing that doesn't need to be spoken? What is the invisible identity of which every other identity is the difference from? There's a, a teacher uh, at Meadville Lombard. She's she's a Unitarian Universalist, theologian, and writer named Tendeka, and she, she put together this game in the 90s and she said for a week go around for an entire week and every time you say somebody's name say their race before the name so don't say my friend john my wife stacy say my white wife stacy Feel how uncomfortable that is for a week. It's almost impossible. I tried it once, I got through two days. And Tendeka's observation is that that's really interesting, right, that that's so hard to do, That, that that identity is buried and unspoken, but is one of the most powerful identities in our society. This isn't just race, either. It's also gender, class, education. All the things that we don't talk about in polite conversation, that is supremacy. That is the the power to define what is normal. So, we're gonna try something different. If you're comfortable. We're going to take a couple minutes. I'm going to ask that you turn towards somebody near you and have a conversation for three minutes. What is the way you benefited from privilege in the last week that you did not see in the moment? We'll do one minute for one person, one minute for the other person, and we'll have one minute for overflow because we're Unitarian Universalists. (laughs) but if you would, please turn to somebody near you. Our second reading is by uh, a dear friend and mentor of mine, the Reverend Natalie Fenimore. Welcome and listen. Though you have broken your vows a thousand times, come yet again come. These words of Rumi speak to the welcome that is at the heart of Unitarian Universalism. We seek to be a home for all who desire our company. We seek to make a welcome for all those in search of our good news. Come, come, little children, teens, young adults, adults and elders. Come, families in great diversity. Come to this loving home and safe harbor, but not to find a place to escape the world. This is a community of engagement and of creativity. We come together to create boldly, dangerously. We must create the beloved community with an awareness of how difficult it is because it is hard work. It is work that challenges us to bring our whole selves and engage deeply for the long haul. Our faith, our tradition, must call us into community. Our task is to create spaces where we might know and value each other. I am here like each of you, offering my life story as a gift to Unitarian Universalism, as a gift to you. Natalie writes, I offer my story as an African-American woman, as a mother of children of color, as a Unitarian Universalist religious educator. When we welcome all our stories into the DNA of our faith, we add value, richness, depth, the inclusion of my story and of all of your stories expands the vision of who we are and what we can become. To be the beloved community, we must know that we care for each other as beloveds, not merely in the abstract, but in the particular, in the personal. Our isolation from one another may be so great, our individual and our collective pain so deep, as to cry out for reconciliation from the start. And this reconciliation must begin with listening. We must listen to our stories. To reconcile, we need to make peace with the past, not by ignoring it, but by looking at it clearly from many sides, and then to move into renewed relationship. We must gain and grow from our knowledge of one another. So there's a metaphor that floats around in Unitarian Universalism. I talked about Jason Shelton's version of it with spinach in your teeth a couple weeks ago. The kids this morning did a version of it. And it goes like this. We think of racism, we think of all the isms, and we think of them like tonsillitis. Our tonsils are bad, we get them taken out, we don't have tonsillitis anymore. We're racist, we go to a workshop, We're not racist anymore. It's (laughs) great. It's fixed. But actually, it's more like dental hygiene. It's more like facial hygiene in the case of this morning. When somebody says you have spinach in your teeth or you have something on your face, it makes no sense to say, I do not. Or how dare you say that about me. It makes sense to go look in a mirror, to check your teeth, to wipe your face off. We need friends in this work, because unless we're the president of the United States, we don't spend every moment of every day looking for the closest mirror. (laughs) (laughs) I can say that, right? Maybe. We'll see. That'll be some emails tomorrow. We don't, we don't always look at ourselves. And so we need friends to point out the places where we have spinach in our teeth, where we have a mark on our face, where we need to think just a little bit about what we just said. We can't do that work on our own. Those of us who are white have some additional challenges to this. Because we cannot set the terms of those relationships. It begins with listening, Natalie Fenimore says. And for a lot of us, that's really, really hard. There's nothing harder than to be told you're wrong. You've been wrong for 30 years, and you need to listen to what I'm telling you now. I struggle with that every time I'm told it. It's happened more than a few times. So we need to listen. We need to be humble. And we need to practice how to do that with each other. And... Every day. This congregation, when I, was, when I was coming here from Long Island, one of the things that I was told about this congregation was that the big idea of this place was partnership. That this is a place that wants to partner with other institutions. And I said in my candidating sermon when I was first coming here that the thing that will define this congregation for the next 25 years is with whom we will partner, and how we will do that partnership. When our partners tell us we have spinach in our teeth collectively, how will we respond? So, we're gonna take three minutes, and I do apologize, we're gonna go a little past 11 this morning. We're gonna take three minutes and talk to your neighbor. And the question this time is, what makes for a real partnership? What makes for an authentic partnership? Either for yourself or for an institution like this one. We'll take a couple of minutes and then we'll come out of it by singing verse four. So, we are doing these teachings because we Unitarian Universalists, specifically us white Unitarian Universalists, have been told that we have spinach in our teeth, that we have something on our face, that our practices have not always followed the principles that we have upheld, that we have been part of a racist, white supremacist system that we benefit from. And yes, this is jarring, especially when the language used is uncomfortable. It is difficult to say that the Unitarian Universalist Association participates in a white supremacist system. That is a hard sentence to say. It's a harder sentence to hear. Because we want to be the folks that get it right and that have gotten it right. I hold... In my mind, that time I was right 15 years ago. (laughs) And it took five years for the rest of the country to come around to my point of view. That's a part of my identity. So being told that the places that, that we think we're right, I can't imagine. I had congregants in Baltimore who marched at Selma. I can't imagine what it's like for them to hear that Unitarian Universalist is white supremacist. That's a tough sentence. But we can learn from this, we, we can grow from it. It's a, it's a challenge. Because liberation is collective. We're in this as well, each and every one of us. We started with King. King also said that all are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality. Tied in a single garment of destiny, whatever affects one individually, affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. White supremacy's most insidious aspect is that it can define normalcy, that everything that isn't it is different, is exotic. And it's worth mentioning again that this isn't race, right? I don't think Harvey Weinstein would have been able to get away with everything he got away with for so long If he didn't get written off of, oh, that's just how men in Hollywood are, that's normal. These aren't separate fights, these are the same fight over and over again, to treat each other with dignity, to live with respect, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to see inherent worth and dignity in every person we come across. Not one of us is free until we are all free. This is going to require hard work. We started in August, we continued today. We're going to continue right up to General Assembly and I promise you we'll be talking about this for years to come. But it is worthwhile work. I want to live in a world where we grow from the richness of everybody in a room. And don't presume that folks that look and sound and are educated like me are normal. I want to live in that dream. So, we'll close with the hymn from the Crush of Wealth and Power which is number 125. if you would rise and buy